text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 26. So you can open to 1 Samuel 26, and if you'd like, you can also open to Psalm 23, which is what I'll be reading. 1 Samuel 26 and Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. Uh, Father, I ask that you would help me now as uh, I preach your word. Lord, I pray that it would be faithful to your word, that it would draw our hearts up to you, our great deliverer. Lord, I thank you that you're a God who is not far off and your presence is offered to us eternally in Christ. What a gift. Lord, I pray that you would use these words of yours from 1 Samuel chapter 26 to draw us to you and maybe even to save this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking this week about the most terrifying situations I've ever been in. Maybe not so much in reality when you stand back and look at it, but when have I felt as much terror as I've ever felt? And the thing that came to my mind so quickly, when I was a child, I hated storms. I, they scared me so much, which I know is ironic now because the Lord's helped me in that area. To, in one sense, I might even have a greater fear now, but I have a better knowledge of what's going on. And I remember sitting in my living room on a humid summer day, And hearing my parents say it's humid outside, when I heard that word, I knew potential death was coming because of the chance of severe storms. And I would get scared when I would see these storms moving towards Watertown and knowing that it's going to get dark and that danger could be approaching tonight. But then I thought, 
That scared me, but nothing scared me more than when I had no clue. I just go to bed like it's a normal night, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, a crash of lightning close. No time to think. No time to try to be reasonable. There's one thing I did in that moment. I jumped up and I ran full speed down the hall. I went crashing into my parents' room and I slept on their floor for the rest of the night. But here's the thing that was amazing to me. The storm was just beginning a lot of times. The scary situation never necessarily went away, but the presence of my mom and dad all all of a sudden actually made the storm not only not terrifying, but almost even you can appreciate it a little bit. You could, I don't know if I could say I totally enjoyed it, but just having the presence of my parents there with me made this trial, this scary time, doable. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've had certain fears that when someone's present with you just seem to totally go away. Well, for David, I think it's the key to his theology. It's the key to his comfort and his hope, the fact that he knows the presence of God. And I think we see that in this text. Um, Before we jump into chapter 26, I just want to remind you of the last couple weeks because uh, really you ought to read from chapter 24 to chapter 27. You know, that would really make the best sermon. Just preach that whole thing. Because when you see this as a whole, it is amazing. Back in chapter 24, David and his army are hiding in a cave. Uh, The Ziphites had alerted Saul. David's over here. Saul's coming after him. Saul walks into the cave to relieve himself and David's men say, kill him, kill him. Today is the day that the Lord gives you your enemies. Kill him, kill him. David cuts off the corner of his robe. His heart strikes him. How dare he touch the Lord's anointed. He has to restrain his men. They can't believe what he's doing. And then as Saul leaves the cave, David comes out. I have your robe, confronts him, (laughs) reminds him of the judgment of God. God's going to judge between them. Saul repents, in a sense, confesses his sin and speaks, in a sense, a prophetic word that, David, you're going to be king. Well, then you get to chapter 25 and you have this story of Nabal, this wicked, foolish man who David voluntarily served, protected his shepherds out in the wilderness and and cared for them and, and provided for them. And now David needs some food, so he sends and says, here's how I've helped you. 
And Nabal says, who is David? There's a lot of rebellious servants out there rebelling from their masters. Who's this guy that I should give my sheep, my food, my drink to? David says, all right, boys, strap on the sword. This fool's dead. And he's going to kill him. And you remember Abigail comes and a wise woman who fears the Lord, just the opposite of her husband, and restrains David from sinning, avenging. So it's, it's kind of like in chapter 24, David, he, he does the right thing. He's going to let the Lord avenge Saul. Chapter 25, he almost sins, but the Lord restrains him. And now we get chapter 26 that seems so much like chapter 24. It's amazing. Here's how it starts out. Uh, we're going to pick up reading in verse 8, but let me just tell you what it says before that. So the Ziphites once again tell Saul that David's hiding on the hill of Hakaliah. Now you might think, why? what do the Ziphites have against David? Well, this is a wilderness area. David has 600 soldiers. There's not very much uh, food out there. And here David's hiding out in our mountains and he's hurting our economy in a sense. That's probably what they had against David. But they go back to Saul, do the same thing. David's over here. So Saul takes 3,000 men and uh, come after David in the wilderness of Ziph again. David sends out spies. The spies see, bring David to see Saul and Abner. Abner's the commander of Saul's army. And uh, they're up in the mountains and they're looking down and they see them camping down in the open. And uh, David looks at Ahimelech and Abishai. They're two of his nephews. And he looks at them and he says, Who's going to go down there with me? So you got 3,000 men. You have the king of Israel right in the center of the 3,000 men. They're spying down on them. (laughs) And David looks at the two and says, who's going? And I think I'd be more like a Himalek because Abishai says, I'll go. And, uh, And so Abishai consents. And at night, once they begin to sleep, they see that Saul is sleeping in the center of the camp and they get a plan. So let's look at verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. So they sneak down into camp. The Lord has caused a deep sleep to be upon them. And they get to Saul, and Saul's laying there, spear at his head, jar of water at his head. And what does Abishai say? God has given your enemy into your hand this day. We've heard this before, haven't we? Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. You can, you can feel his argument. 
I know what you did last time. Don't worry, I'm not going to make him suffer. I'll make it count. Just one thrust of the spear. I won't strike the Lord's anointed twice. David, this is amazing. We're here. Here is your opportunity. But David said to Abishai, verse 9, Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Remember, the Lord's anointed to strike him is to strike at the Lord. To be anointed of the Lord is to be set apart, to be his possession. And David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. What did he just learn? God in His grace let him go through the Nabal situation where he restrains from killing Nabal and Nabal's dead ten days later. And David says here, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Verse 10, or his day will come to die or he'll go down into battle and perish. His confidence is God will defeat my enemies for me. And then he says, verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head in the jar of water and let us go. (laughs) I couldn't help but feel what Abishai must have felt. So I'm a deer hunter and a bow hunter. Usually a bow hunter gets one chance a season, if you're lucky, to shoot a trophy, a, a big deer. And in a sense, these guys are sneaking down into camp. Their enemy is in the camp. Abishai is saying, yeah, let's go. I'll go down into the camp with you. And I'm just relating this. This would be like myself hunting all season. And finally, here's the monster buck. <laughs> He's coming And he's not downwind. He's coming right on the trail, 15 yards, perfect shot. And I'm just getting ready to shoot. And my buddy says, dude, take my camera. Just take a picture of him. Just take a picture of him. We'll just remember this moment. David's saying, just grab his spear and his water jug. Let's just take that and go. And I'm feeling, okay. Okay, David. And so then they sneak away because they're sleeping. And when they went a long ways off to the top of the hill, look what verse 14 says, David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord, the king? Now, picture Abner compared to David. Abner's job is to keep the king alive. David's the one being hunted, and David respects the Lord, fears the Lord, respects the Lord's anointed. And he says, Abner, you are not a man that you would be sleeping 
on protecting the Lord's King. Why have you then not kept watch over your King? Verse 15. For one of the people came in to destroy the King your Lord. For one of the people came to destroy the King your Lord. This thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. That's the point. You don't deserve to live when you disrespect God that way. When you so don't fear God that you're going to fall asleep on the job. And here's what he says, and now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that is at his head. So what can we learn so far from this chapter? Here's what I think. This could be the same sermon three weeks in a row. Know the Lord's presence. Let Him avenge. You see, if you know God is with you, and God is present, and God sees every wrong, then you don't have to avenge. This point has been in the last three sermons. It must be important that we recognize the presence of God and let Him avenge our enemies. Then look at verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and says, Is this your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. David doesn't let him talk. He said, Why does the Lord pursue after his servant? Remember? David is his most faithful servant. He's slayed Goliath. He's been his musician to calm him when an evil spirit is tormenting him. Why are you pursuing after your servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. David's saying, if I have sin on me and God told you to seek me out, then, oh Lord, will you please accept an offering and forgive me? If my sin could be forgiven. You see, David always hopes in a forgiving God. But, he says, if it is men... So if it's not the Lord who stirred you up against me, but if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. And here's why. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Cursed be these men if they told you to drive me out of Israel where you can worship the Lord, where the presence of God dwells behind the curtain. Curse be you if you drive me out of Israel and make me run to a foreign land where there's other gods. If men have put you up to this, then curse be them. And what's the great offense? 
that you've driven me out of the presence of worshiping the Lord in the congregation of Israel. So the second point, know the Lord's presence and be influenced by Him. Ask this honestly of yourself. David asked it of Saul. Saul, stop for a minute. Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you doing it because men have stirred you up? Or are you doing it because God has stirred you up? Think about your life this week. Why are you even doing what you're doing? Are you doing it out of the fear of man to please man? Or are you doing it because the Lord has stirred you up? It's a good question that all of us should ask. How often in my own life have I recognized I'm running in vain to please man when I'll stand before the Lord? The second or the third thing here is know the Lord's presence and drive people into it. Isn't this amazing? Saul is driving David out of the presence of the Lord. And I just thought, there's another great question to ask. When people come into contact with us, do we drive them out of the presence of the Lord or into the presence of the Lord? I have a couple of great friends in Minnesota that come hunting every year. And one of them works in a shop. The other one is a shop teacher. And totally different types of professions. They both love the Lord. And I can get together with them. And you get guys together. Coarse joking can begin to happen. You know, we just say this is what guys do. This is, this is what happens. And I can tell you I've done it both ways. I've just been another guy, not doing anything horrible, but I'm definitely not driving them into the Lord's presence. And there's been other times where, by the grace of God, He's helped me steer our thoughts, our conversation in a way that enters us into the presence of God. And for me, it could be for the sake of humor. I got something funny I could say now, but I, you know. But the real question is, is when people get around me, how do I drive them? Lord forbid that I drive my buddies into an idolatrous hobby more than the Lord. Oh, that I could just hunt with them, but have the Lord be the main thing of our relationship. Be thankful for this side thing, but it's the presence of God. So ask yourself, or I'm charging you, know the Lord's presence and drive people into it. This is, remember back in chapter 23, Jonathan, Saul's son rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. It's this picture of 
in a tough time, Jonathan grabs David's hand and says, come to God. Don't lose hope. This is what a true friend does. They drive us, they drag us into the presence of God to the place where true hope is found. And I want you to think of a question here. What's the worst part? Imagine if you lived David's life in these last five chapters running from Saul. I mean, it's almost unthinkable. I think we're to like time 13 that David's life is being threatened to be killed. And this week as I was thinking of this text, it's like, I could be thinking of a lot of things as I'm in the wilderness that I am upset about. Food, for one. This, this is no fun, you know, eating military meals out in the wilderness. How about a bed? These are things I think I would be, you know, Saul, you dog. Lord's gonna judge you. I've been putting my head on a rock for the last few months, on the run away from my family, from my dad, from the farm. You know, these are the things I would be upset about. But look at what verse 20 says. Now therefore, here's David's big beef. Let not my blood fall to the earth. What does it say? Away from the presence of the Lord. It's not just, don't let me die. Don't let me die away from the congregation of the Lord, away from the presence of God. Let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the King of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains? Then Saul said, I've sinned. Return, David. Return, my son, David. For I will no more harm you. David, you don't need to run anymore. I've sinned. Come back. And here's what he says. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day, come back. Behold, I've acted foolishly. I've made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. And the shocking thing to me here is David's biggest fear is not worshiping in the presence of the Lord. What if he had to die away from Israel? Away from the covenant family. Because at this point in time in the covenant of covenants of God, where does God's presence dwell? Above the mercy seat. Behind the curtain. And it's shocking to me that it's not all these other things. So point four is, know the presence of the Lord is supremely valuable. What does David know that I don't know that I would know 
that the most valuable thing in the world is the presence of God. We don't realize, you know, when Jesus says you're no longer going to worship on this mountain or that mountain to the Samaritan woman, do you realize the blessing of that? I'm going to worship the Lord everywhere at any time. David looked forward to this in faith. He knew the most valuable thing was the presence of God. The New Testament writers knew the same thing. Listen to 1 Peter 3.8. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the best news in the world. Because you're unrighteous like I'm unrighteous. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 Best promise in the whole world. No wonder David wrote Psalm 23. Psalm Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms, made so much more sense to me this week after studying this passage. Let's read it. Psalm 23, if you want to turn there. Here's what he says. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. (laughs) When you're running through the wilderness, David recognized there was a shepherd with him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And leads me beside still waters. Is that where David is? No, he's not there at all in reality. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. You think it would say for my namesake. He makes it so I can be righteous for my namesake. But he's looking forward to a type of righteousness that brings glory to God and not himself. A righteousness that's a gift. And then verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is the worst day of your life. The biggest enemy you and I have is death. And he says, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For why? For you are with me. Here's David's point. If you're with me, and I know you're with me, then the most valuable thing in the world's mine. I lack nothing if the Lord is my shepherd. If when I walk through the darkest day, God walks through the darkest day with me. And then, the part of this psalm I never really understood So even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. And then look at this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Even if you drive me into enemy land apart from Israel, you'll prepare a table for me. Your presence will reach out even in the presence of my enemies. And your presence will so 
overflow. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm always going to be in his house, in his presence. David's experience in life was he was driven out of Israel The next chapters, he's going to go hide out in Philistine land. We're going to see David's sin over there. But I'll tell you what David knows. He knows that he's going to be in that house. He's going to feast in the presence of his enemies with the Lord. And so remember point four. Know the Lord's presence as supremely valuable. Anything else you try to value against it, it will fail. I don't care what it is. What you're made for is to live in His presence. Even walk through the valley of shadow of death, if He's with you, then only good's following me. Yeah, tough circumstances. If He's with me, that's the most valuable thing. And then we get to the last point. Know the Lord's presence and trust His deliverance. Look at verse 23. Here's David's reasoning. The Lord rewards every man, or the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the late Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Here's what he says. I know there's reward coming for the righteous. And today, I didn't kill you like I could have killed you. This is, this is what David knows. He's living for reward. He knows that the righteous is rewarded. In Galatians 6, Paul says God's not mocked. Here's what he says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. This is basically what David is saying. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, or or, will reap from flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. David knows one thing. It matters. It matters how you live your life, what you sow to, whether you sow to the Spirit, whether you sow to the flesh. And then he says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Now, here's the deal. This might seem like not good news to you. David's words. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. Who hears that as good news? How's your righteousness? How's your faithfulness? You feeling pretty good about it? I'm not. It doesn't sound like good news to me. What, what Paul just said is from the book of Galatians, chapter 6, and how he ends that passage, he says, especially of those who are the household of faith. 
He doesn't say righteousness. Well, he's just taught through this whole book that righteousness comes by faith, not by works of the law. Look, 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 look at how he goes on in verse 24 of 1 Samuel 26. Here's what, here's what he says. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Now, get this. Here's David's reasoning. As your life, this is a prayer, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. Here's the picture. Saul, in the middle of his sleep, had an enemy and a spear. And the enemy said, let me kill him. And David said, I saw your life as precious. I saw your life as precious. I didn't let him pin you to the ground. Oh, that the Lord would see my life as precious. Well, let me tell you, dear friends, we have an enemy. And there's a spear. Sin is your enemy. Satan is your accuser. And God's justice demands that the spear be taken up. And you're laying there. And you want to know what God did? There was one better than David there. Jesus didn't just come and say, oh, don't spear them. Don't strike them. I, I see them as precious. You see, Jesus didn't come and say that and then go hide up on a hill at a safe distance. Jesus comes. Let me, let me give you the words of the prophet. Isaiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. One greater than David came. And he argued our cause. And God said, well, if you're going to argue their cause and purchase them, then you lay down. You got to take the spear, the punishment for sin, the justice. Sin demands punishment. And this is what David looked forward to in faith. Behold, as your life was precious as day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. Here's what you need to know, sinner. Your life was so precious in the sight of Christ and His Father that the Father sent His Son to be pierced in your place so that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
There won't be one hint of doubt. There need not be one hint of doubt that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. There's nothing He could do. And why is your life precious? It's not because you were cute. And it's not because you were sinless. And it's not because of your righteousness. He found you precious because He decided to give you love, to pour out amazing love upon you. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. And I hope and I know that God has both those things for me. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he gave me gifts. One of the gifts was his righteousness. Another gift was faith. Another gift was repentance. The very things I need for salvation. Listen to Galatians 3. Paul earlier in that chapter. For all who lie on, rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not, not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. He's simply saying, if you want to try to be a good person, well then you've got to be perfectly good. You've got, you got to abide to everything written in them. And then he says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. We think they would say, for the righteous will live by keeping the law perfectly, but that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news is the righteous live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's a substitution. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Well, the Spirit brings to us the presence of God, does it not? And you receive the presence of God through faith. And God gifts you righteousness. I want to close with one last verse from Paul, Philippians 3, 7. Here's what Paul thought of his righteousness, which, by the way, is much better than ours, religiously speaking. After his long list of everything he did religiously, he said this, but whatever I gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He says every good work I did, I count it as rubbish as far as bringing Him into the presence of God in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from a law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, that's my life. It's a gift of righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. 
that I may know the power of His resurrection, that I may share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Do you know the Lord's deliverance? Do you know the Lord's presence? And do you know what He did to deliver you? Do you know how precious your life was Christ's blood screams out that yes, you were a sinner. That's why He had to shed His blood. But look at His mercy and His kindness for His people. My prayer is everyone here would give up, count any good works you've done that you think God is going to applaud on Judgment Day as being the grounds for your salvation, that you give up on all that hope and that you seek a righteousness that's a gift from God by faith. That simply means that you look to Jesus and say, He lived the life I couldn't live. And the only way I'm getting into heaven is if somehow He can be a substitution and His life can be my life. And that God can open my heart and give me faith to trust in Him and repent. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word that speaks to us, the everlasting presence of of dwelling with You. Right now, the Holy Spirit, if we're trusting in You, dwells within us. We'll, We'll never be apart from Christ from the Spirit of Christ, from the Spirit of the Lord, what greater gift could we have than knowing that You are with us? Lord, I pray that we would believe this by faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.